Welcome to another episode of Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. I'm your host, Tim Friedman, with rock expert Frank Ost. Frank, how are you today? I'm great, and it's great to be here. Good to have you joining us. Today in Rock History starts off our show. We're going to feature Steve Miller today in the band. Mm-hmm. It should be a good show. February 28th, 1966, the Cavern Club in Liverpool, England, closed its doors for the final time because of mounting financial troubles. Police had to be called to disperse the crowd of more than 100. Only 100 people were there. But it's a small place. You know? Yeah, absolutely. They had barricaded themselves inside, protesting the closing. Yeah, and as though, for those of you who are not quite familiar with the Cavern Club, though, it's one of the places the Beatles the played. Beatles. Yeah. Led Zeppelin performed under the name The Knobs in 1970 on the state uh, after the family of Ferdinand von Zeppelin threatened a lawsuit. <laughs> I never knew that. That's a great fact. Oh, 1974, Bobby Bloom, Montego Bay, 1970, died from an accidental shooting at only 28 years old. 1977, get this, Frankie, Ray Charles was attacked while performing on stage in L.A. Later, it was speculated that the audience member was merely overcome with emotions. Luckily, Ray made it out of there without a scratch and performed later on that evening. 1984, (laughs) Michael Jackson took home an astounding eight Grammy Awards that night. Seven from the album Thriller. That's right. The eighth was for his non-musical narration on the film E.T. Michael was there that night, even though he had just had that mishap during the shoot for Pepsi, where his hair caught on fire. Oh, yeah, that's right. The the dreaded hair caught on fire. Uh, 1985, David Byron, vocalist and co-founder of the band Uriah Heep, Mm -hmm. died. He was only 38 years old. George Michael, we made a case for him for Rock Hall induction last week, didn't we? He announced the breakup of Wham! in 1986. Andrew Ridgely, I'm sure, didn't care one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if he knew he was in the band. Exactly. The original members of KISS in 1996 uh, appeared at the Grammys. The first time in 17 years they appeared in full makeup, and costume. Wow. I don't know why they would bother redoing all that. Everybody knew what they looked like. Exactly. Then. And Al- Alanis Morissette in 1996 became the youngest woman to win a Grammy for Album of the Year with Jagged Little Pill. She was only 22. That's that right. That was eclipsed, eclipsed by a 20-year-old named Taylor Swift a few years later. And uh, birthdays. Liza Minnelli's father, Vincent Minnelli, was born in the state in 1903. Great director he was. Remember Earl Scheib? I'll paint any kind, any kind of. 1999, I think it was, or something like that. He died in 1992. It kept going up over the years. And he was born in 1907. Gavin McLeod passed away in the, oh, the summer of last year. Mm-hmm. You know, Love Boat, Mary Tyler Moore, died in 2021, and he was born in 1931. Mario Andretti, you know, he has a twin, Aldo. Aldo is also a racer who died a couple that. years ago, but Mario is 80 years old, 82 years old today. Frank Bonner, you know, Herb from W.A. Care, Cincinnati. He also passed away last year. He was born in 1942, as was Brian Jones, who died in 1969 of the Stones at just 26 years old. Yeah, incredible. Bubba Smith, remember those Miller Lite commercials he did? The uh, defensive end for the Baltimore Colts? That's that's right. I do remember that. They had a whole list of... tore off the top of the can? Yeah, Joe Frazier was on one of those. those commercials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He died in 2011, but he was born in 1945. Time for Download Discovery, Frankie. You have one and I have one, and yours is a recent inductee into the Rock Hall, 
in the early influence category. They sure are. Uh, it's Kraftwerk with their, I'll call it an album side of Autobahn. Now, there have been plenty of songs written about the most famous highway in America, Road 66. And here's one about maybe the most famous highway in the world, the Autobahn. Mm -hmm. uh, the brainchild of innovators Ralph Hooter and Florian Schneider. Love name. That great name. This, this uh, is an electronic album uh, with just a little bit of violin, flute, and guitar to go along with the synthesizers. Believe it or not, there was a 3 minute and 28 second single edit of the title cut that made it to number 25 here in the States. Really? Uh, but the beauty of the album is the hypnotic 23-minute version where you can actually close your eyes and feel like you're taking a journey uh, down the Autobahn. That might <laughs> even appear in your best album cover category someday. Exactly. Awesome-looking awesome cover. That's kind of a fun one, yes. That's the fourth studio album by that German band. It's spelled K-R-A-F-T-W-E-R-K, in case That's you're right. interested in downloading, which I highly recommend. Peaked the number five here in the States, number four in the UK, number five in Canada. So a nice consistency all across the place. Exactly. Mine would be Brandon Flowers. You know the group The Killers, the Las Vegas-based band? They're still around today. Sure, yes. I really like their music. Uh, I really like Brandon Flowers on his own. He's put out a couple of solo albums over the last 10 years or so. This one comes from the album called The Desired Effect. It was out in 2015. And he was doing an interview on DirecTV when they used to have a rock and roll show, and then they'd have him play some tunes oh, okay. at the Guitar Center Studios in L.A. So one of the songs he played was Between Me and You. It's from that album. It was not released, but the album had some really good tunes on it, so I would recommend you download the whole thing or just the song Between Me and You. Solo work is outstanding. Some of the stuff you'll hear on that album are Lonely Town, Can't Deny My Love, and Still Want You. Uh, Bruce Hornsby actually helps out in piano on this song between me and you. Oh, that's always fun. Yeah, and Brandon not only wrote it and sings it, but he played guitar and then a little bit of piano and synthesizers as well. It's a nice little mid-tempo song. I think you'll like it. Great. New category for us, Frankie, Best Instrumentals. We've talked a lot about uh, some of the great rock instrumentals of the 70s and the late 60s, and there were some good ones in that I time period. I forgot how many good ones there were, to be honest with so you. So we have a whole <laughs> list. We're going to trace them for you. It'll be a fun topic. We'll each give you one, and I'm going to start off with Dueling Banjos by Eric mm. Weisberg with two S's and Steve Mandel with two L's. Both were outstanding session musicians. They worked with the likes of Judy Collins, John Denver over the years. The Bluegrass song was composed by Arthur Good, uh, Guitar Boogie Smith in 1954. We talked about this oh, okay. very early episode. It was actually featured in a 1963 episode of Andy Griffith. I didn't realize Called that. Briscoe Declares for Aunt B. I'll bet you she fell in love or somebody fell in love with her. Definitely. For some reason. In the movie Deliverance, the two on the guitar banjo duel are played by Ronnie Cox, who later were, was uh, Lieutenant Bogomil on uh, Beverly Hills Beverly Cop. Beverly Hills Cop, M2, sure. yeah. And also a fellow named Billy Redden, a 15-year-old who was discovered by Lynn Stahlmeister, who was uh, scouting for the film at the time. Only thing, uh, Billy couldn't play the banjo. <laughs> really? But he fit the look as... Oh, he definitely fit the look if you've yeah, seen the picture. The backwards, you, uh, yeah. you know... So they had a specially made over a little bit inbred. A little bit, yeah, that was the yes. whole idea. So they had a oversized, specially made shirt for Billy, and a real banjo player was standing behind him playing it. No way. Yeah. That's neat. So I never realized they that. carefully shot it from different angles so as to not give away the secret. Sure. But, uh, dueling banjos, uh, part of Deliverance, kind of a creepy movie, right? 
Absolutely. Dueling Banjos, the song entered the Hot 100 chart in January of 1973. I remember it well. I didn't see the movie back then. I think it was rated R. Yeah, it I was. couldn't get into those kind of movies, nor would I want to. It entered the top 40 in early February, moving all the way from 41 to number 18 in one week, which wasn't unheard of. But the song peaked at number two, where it be kept out of the top spot by Roberta Flack, who spent the same four weeks at number one in those uh, the time period of early 1973. Dueling Banjos, great tune that, from Deliverance. That's a fun tune, It's definitely. a fun little backstory from a backwoods type of movie. Well, the one I got for us this, uh, this time is a tune by the name of Classical Gas mm-hmm. by a gentleman, Mason Williams. Nice. Uh, if there is an instrumental that would represent my pre-high school self, <laughs> this, would, this great tune from 1968 would be it. Uh, it was just enough rock to be cool and just enough classical pop for my parents and my grandmother to like it. Wow, grandma! So liked I could too. play the single nonstop, nice. a rare song that my whole family liked. Yeah. Uh, originally named Classical Gasoline, the title was later inadvertently shortened by a music, music copyist. So it was just an accident <laughs> that it became Classical Gas. Uh, Williams wrote and performed the song while Mike Post, uh, later famous for lots of Yeah, Rockford Fire Files, uh, Hill Street Blues. Exactly. L.A. Law. Yes, he uh, was the producer and arranger of mm, the song. I did not know that. And Williams uh, was also head writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour yeah. and not only premiered the composition on the show, but performed it several times <laughs> over several episodes. A three-time Grammy Award-winning and million-selling record, it peaked at number two. And by the way, I was looking this up in uh, July 20th, 1968, according to Billboard, it moved from number 29 all the way to number eight. So that's a meteoric rise of uh, more than 20 spots in one week. I forgot how good it was. It really is a good tune. It It is. It really brings you back to that summer. It sure does. Glenn Campbell's Good Time Hour, he also wrote for, and one episode, one season rather, of Saturday Night Live, he couldn't get along with the producer, one Lauren Michaels. He had left, you know, after the original cast. Oh, I remember that. So he only stuck around for one year. But the 83-year-old Mason Douglas Williams has had his symphonic bluegrass concert performed by more than 40 symphony orchestras really? over the years, wow. which is a feather in his cap. He Absolutely. played with Manheim Steamroller yeah. in the late 80s, too. So. Okay. Yeah. I got some really good shows coming up. Concert calendar time, Frankie. Thursday, March 3rd, it's Kansas, downtown Cleveland, Counter Palace. The next night, Friday, March 4th, Marshall Tucker Band, MGM Center Stage. I'd like to see that one. Hotel California, they're going to play the whole entire album. Take a break and then play some greatest hits. Thursday, March 17th, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Daryl Hall, Todd Rundgren, MGM Center Stage. April the 7th, that's a Thursday night. Lindsay Buckingham, last week's featured artist with Stevie Nicks. Lindsay's going to be performing at the Kent Stage. Good to see him back, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, the 22nd of April. You got Journey and Toto coming up at the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse Saturday, May 7th. On the 14th, Saturday the 14th, uh, Joe Jackson, MGM Center Stage, Kent Stage, Al Stewart. May the 18th, and a show just announced the end of July the 30th, Saturday night. Great time for a show, isn't it? MGM Center Stage, Earth, Wind, and Fire just announced. Should be a great, great show. It is time for our one-hit wonder, and Frankie, this is kind of like the follow-up, if you will, to uh, Space Oddity by David Bowie. It's called yes. Major Tom, I'm Coming Home, Peter Schilling, another German artist. 
You know, the new wave synth-pop artist from Hamburg scored a number one hit with this one in West Germany and Switzerland and Austria. It was recorded in his native tongue of German. It sounds like a, a nice follow-up to Space Oddity. It's more up-tempo, and I, I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. The English version was released here in the States in September 83. It hit number one in Canada, but okay. only number 14 here. You know, it only got as high as number 42 in the UK. That's odd. It's very strange. You would have thought it would have been kind of a big hit there with... Uh, yeah, you would think. It's not too far away from Germany. From, yeah, Bowie's roots. <laughs> right. It's been featured on TV's Breaking Bad and also in the Netflix series called The Umbrella Academy. It's Major Tom and I'm Coming Home. Nice. Two at Wonder Time, The Circle. We um, talk about them, talked about them, I think in season one, in our big breakup category because... Brian Epstein founded them and kind of promoted them. They opened for 14 dates of the Summer 66 tour for the Beatles, including their last show. And John Lennon came up the idea of spelling circle C-Y-R-K-L-E, not the usual way. Uh, So Red Rubber Ball was their first song. It peaked at number two in July of 66. You know what kept it out? Paperback Writer by the Beatles. Who else? (laughs) (laughs) That song, A Red Rubber Ball, really cool, written by Paul Simon and Bruce Woodley of The Seekers. And later that year, Columbia Records released a follow-up called Turn Down Day. Oh, remember I that? remember that one, yeah, too. It yeah, it peaked at number 16 in September of that year. They didn't have much success as The Circle after that, so the band members named Tom Dawes and Don Danman went on to become jingle writers. Remember okay. Alka Seltzer's Plop, Plop, Fizz, Fizz? Sure. That's Ooh, what they wrote. Oh, wow. That's Tom a big, Dawes that also, a big yeah, one. That's a good one. <laughs> Probably kept them in the money for the rest of their lives. I, I would imagine they might have made more money off of that than they did off of Red Rubber Ball. Probably, especially <laughs> since Paul, uh, Paul Simon and Bruce Woodley wrote it. Sure. Tom Dawes went on to produce a couple of early albums for the group Fog Hat. Oh, okay, great. So it's Circle and Red Rubber Ball, which I really like, and Turn Down Day. And for those uh, who come from Lakewood, um, they may remember that back in the 60s when the basketball team used to come on the, the uh, court, it was Red Rubber Ball that they played, and then Sweet Georgia Brown. Really? Yep. So Frankie Rock releases the last week of February in 1979. Ricky Lee Jones came out with, you know, Chucky's in Love and yeah, Young Blood. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I forget. I completely forget about her. Somehow I get her. I get her mixed, mixed up, with, up with Patty Smith. I get her mixed up with Joni Mitchell. Okay. I don't know why. Well, she wore the beret. Yeah, and that's yeah. 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 Uh, she would have been great at Woodstock. Oh, absolutely. Ricky Lee Jones. Yes. Pink Floyd, you'll remember this one, Dark Side of the Moon. I think I heard it once yeah, or twice. March 1st, 1973. <laughs> Grand Funk's um, follow-up, uh, Shining On, 1974. Oh, another great They one. were still, they had American Band and Absolutely. some great, great tunes. Good stuff. Todd Rundgren's A Wizard, A True Star. That features a lot of experimental stuff and uh, Just One Victory. Yeah. Thick as a Brick, Jethro Tull, Captain and Me, Doobie Brothers. Stevie Wonder's Music of My Mind. Good tunes there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Burning Star by Bad Bad Company, Patty Smith with Easter, came out in 1978. Joe Jackson's Look Sharp with a exclamation point at the end of Sharp, came out in this date in 1979 or March. And that was more when he was kind of like in the, in the punk thing. You thought yeah. he was going to be a punk guy, right? Yeah. Then Night and Day comes along, he's doing Cole Porter. And one that I really like, I haven't talked enough about, but I'll probably include these uh, this group in our download discovery pretty soon. New Music, spelled M-U-S-I-K. Uh, their 1981 album, Anywhere, came out. Pop versus Psychedelic, and I like this uh, category. We always come up with something good. Oh, this was fun. from the week of May 21st, 1966. Early, 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 early. early. Number 15, Herman's Hermits, 
leaning on a lamppost. What a great tune. I'm sorry. <laughs> Toward the end, it really speeds up in time. I like yeah. that. So that was number 15, the week of May 21st, 1966. Number 14 was... Eight Miles High by oh, the Birds. Great. Critics often cite this as the being the first bonafide psychedelic rock song. As the song started to head towards the top ten, many radio stations across the country decided it was a drug song and quit playing it. Hmm. As Roger McGuinn put it, the birds were never were damaged goods and never again hit the top 20. Maybe they should have switched to the pop category instead. Exactly. And Herman's Hermits <laughs> could do some psychedelic. Now, that would be interesting. That's right. 1974, our spotlight year. Frank, you got some top albums for me that year. I am not <laughs> including greatest hits on albums on my list. There would be way too many of them, yeah. and frankly, I don't think they always give you a good picture of what was popular in a given year. Mm-hmm. Number five, Diamond Dogs by David Bowie. Bowie. Now, moving into a new phase in his career, this is the first album after he disbanded the Spiders from Mars. Rebel Rebel, uh, one of my favorite cuts, was one of the last great rock and roll dance tune before disco struck. Number four was Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Now, this album is clearly her most commercial venture, and it paid off by going double platinum. It spawned three of her most accessible tunes. Including my favorite of hers, Help Me. Help Me, Free Man in Paris, and Raised on Robbery. Yeah, and Joni was just one of the Kennedy Center honorees late last year. That's right. Now, number three, um, 461 Ocean Boulevard by uh, Mr. We've Eric talked about Clapton. that before, Evan, we, one way or another. Absolutely. And like I said, I think I agree. Uh, I think Tim and I agree yeah. that this is our favorite Clapton soul pro- solo project. Mm-hmm. Um, I Shot the Sheriff was the number one hit, but the strength of the album are the deep cuts Motherless Child, Main Lane, Florida, and of course, the gorgeous Let It Grow. Number two, Band on the Run oh, by Wings. I love that. I, now, that's when I went out and bought, probably with my own lawn mowing or snow shoveling money. Absolutely. I had to have that album. Uh, and I think a lot of us had to have it. Considered to this day to be Paul's greatest post-Beatles work. I would agree. Uh, this album was a late 73 release, yeah. but it took a while to, to break and didn't reach number one until April of 74. Mm-hmm. Then again in June. Then again in <laughs> July. Yeah. Um, it has the personal connection for me of being the number one album the week I graduated from high school. Finally, number one, who else could it be but Mr. Elton John? Oh, yeah. Uh, I included both Caribou and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. They were both huge that year. Exactly. To show how hot Elton was, the best chart performance by any album in 1974 was actually by Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was released in October of 1973. Then he released Caribou in 1974, and it was number one for four weeks. Then his greatest (laughs) hits package was number one for the last five weeks of the year. Wow. 1974 was truly Elton's year. Domination all the way around. And some other great tunes and albums as well, like the one from John Denver. You know, he had Sunshine on My Shoulders, the number one song, Annie's Song, which I love, Mm -hmm. Back Home Again. Yeah, The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand, that's another Robert Redford boy. He was at the top of his game, wasn't he, back he then? He sure was. Rock Your Baby, Rock the Boat, and Rock Me Gently, the three rock songs that weren't rock songs. So, But there are some great songs to start the year, Frankie, not to mention The Way We Were, which is small, but I really like the song The Joker, uh, Seasons in the Sun, 
some oh. great stuff to start the year, and then it kind of <laughs> went downhill, didn't it? <laughs> we had the locomotion, and you ain't seen nothing yet, and sundown, and I can help. Just some there great stuff. There were a few stuff. good songs, yeah. and I shouldn't poo-poo the whole year, but right. there was a lot of garbage, too. There, there was. <laughs> Mixed in with some great instrumentals. You mentioned the entertainer. How about Love's Theme, Start that's the right. Year? Yeah. Tubular Bells, that's the Mike Oldfield tune from uh, The Exorcist, which always creeps me out, the movie and the song. Yeah, anytime you went to a party back then, somebody had Tubular Bells and put it on. Yeah. <laughs> and TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia by MFSB, Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, the Philadelphia Sound, Top the charts in uh, spring of 74. That would probably be my favorite disco song to this day. I just love that song. It's a great car driving song. <laughs> <laughs> to round out 1974 and our conversation about that, some new artists are some we just heard for the first time. Billy Joel and Piano Man, Shaka Khan's Tell Me Something Good that went top five, Bad Company, you mentioned, Barry Manilow mm-hmm. with Mandy, uh, ABBA, and Waterloo, which was one of maybe two or three songs of theirs I like. And Atlanta Rhythm Section, okay. you would know from So Into You and Imaginary Lover, That's Do It or right, Die and yeah. Spooky later on. But uh, at first, we first started hearing from ARS, the band from Doraville. So that kind of rounds out 1974 in a good way. Nice. New segment, Frankie, you've been thinking about this for a while. Artists who debuted at number one or number two. Nice. Now, when you think about number one artists... These guys did not start out at number one. Madonna, Michael Jackson, Chuck Berry, Paul McCartney, even the Supremes, none of them had a number one song right out of the gate. That's right. A lot of them did, including Rod Stewart and Maggie May. Oh, yes. Hit number one right in the fall of 71 when I was starting sixth grade, along with maybe Theme from Shaft and uh, Uncle Albert. There's nothing that reminds me of the beginning of Harding than that one with Hit number one the week of October 2nd, 1971, replacing Donny Osmond's Go Away, Little Girl. Wow. I don't know if Talk Donnie about was, two uh, completely different songs. Yeah, do you think Donny yeah. was upset about that? Probably not. Other number ones for Rod Stewart were Tonight's the Night, Do You Think I'm Sexy, All for Love, you know, with uh, Brian Adams oh, that's and Sting right. yeah, from I the Blue Three that Musketeers. That started, starred uh, Charlie Sheen and Kiefer Sutherland. So Rod Stewart was not done after Maggie May. Nice. Featured artist Time Frankie, Steve Miller, and the band, born Stephen Haworth Miller, in October of 1943 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hall of Fame inductee 2016, inducted by the Black Keys. That was at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn when okay. it just opened. Now, well, Steve right. Miller was very outspoken that night. If you remember uh, seeing those ceremonies, it was six years ago, but still. He was upset about the length of the show. Well, who wouldn't be? The show lasts forever and ever. Apparently, they didn't get to Steve Miller until they were like four hours in or something. This is on stage. Hmm. He went on to say this. The Rock Hall only gave him a ticket and one to his wife, but any additional seats that night would cost him an additional $10,000 apiece. And since the night was kind of going long, I'm sure that was starting to burn him up a little bit. Although yeah. I'm sure he got his money's worth at well, least. Well, <laughs> if you're going to pay $10,000, you might as well get four hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, his mother, Bertha, was a tremendous jazz singer. And his father was a pathologist who was also an amateur recording engineer. So he taught oh. Steve a lot of stuff. 
uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford were actually really good friends of his folks, and okay. they had him over quite often. Les would help him learn how to play the guitar at the Miller house. In fact, the Millers were the best man and maid of honor, or matron of honor, at the Paul Ford wedding in 1949. I had no idea. I, I've never heard of that, but that's kind of neat. Then they relocated to uh, Dallas, Texas in 1950, where they would hook up with greats like T-Bone Walker. Like, these, the people they hung out with, my father hung out with like his poker buddies and stuff. Yeah, my father went bowling. Yeah, but they taught you how to bowl. You're in the, you're in the bowling hall That's of fame. That's true. <laughs> T-Bone Walker actually taught the young Steve Miller how to play guitar behind his back and with his teeth. That's really neat. I'm not sure you'd want mom or dad seeing that these days, uh, the teeth part at least. I don't know why you'd need to, but hey, why not? So Steve formed his first band, and one of the band members was Boz Skaggs, who he played with also like in high school and college and, you know, in his first band and everything. Boy, did this guy have influences. <laughs> My Goodness Lord. gracious. He spent some time, Steve did, in Copenhagen or Copenhagen. Okay. Then moved back to the States to work the jazz scene in Chicago. He worked with Paul Butterfield, Muddy Waters, and Buddy Guy. Sure. So he, just like his folks, were hanging out with uh, class acts, right? Absolutely. But he became disillusioned with the music scene. In Chicago. Okay. Oh, I don't know how with those guys, but like Butterfield probably moved on to San Francisco. And that's what I think of him. I think of him as Bay Area, but obviously I was way off on that one. <laughs> yeah, and his father wasn't even an Army guy or anything. He wasn't an Army sure. bred. Going from base to base, he just moved around a little bit. So he formed the Steve Miller Band in 1966, where he created the persona Gangster of Love. That's right. Space Cowboy, Maurice. You know, all those songs featured in Some The people Joker. Call me Maurice. I guess uh, the the word he used, um, I speak from the pompadus of love. Yes. I guess pompadus isn't even a word. I, I've never been able to actually find it anywhere. It just yeah. sounded good, so he kept it. So he kind of jumped out of nowhere, to me at least, with The Joker in 1973, but he had six or seven albums before that. I know. I'll... You know, back in the day, we thought of him as a kind of an overnight sensation, and yeah. little did we know that he he would he had started you know in the mid sixties. Children of the Future in nineteen sixty eight, followed by Sailor, then Brave New World, Your Saving Grace, number five, Rock Love, Recall the Beginning, A Journey from Eden in nineteen seventy two, then The Joker in nineteen seventy three, then Fly Like an Eagle. Now everybody knew wow. Steve yeah. Miller after that if they yeah, didn't absolutely. already know. Absolutely. Book of Dreams, 1977, Circle of Love in 81. I'm not, I don't know much about that album, but I do know about Abracadabra in 82. Yeah, I remember Circle of Love. Uh, he had really hard time following up on Book of Dreams because, yeah. I mean, between Fly Like an Eagle and Book of Dreams, it's so many hits. And it took him quite a while. It ended up being four years, and I don't think he was ever happy with Circle of Love. Well, he might have been running out of things to say as well. Exactly. Elton John, um, Chicago was like that sure. at a certain point. Sure. The Joker, Fly Like an Eagle, Take the Money and Run, Rockin' Me, which was his only number one besides Abracadabra, Swingtown, Jungle Love, Jet Airliner. Did you ever see him in concert? I never have. I don't think Although he ever came around, did Nina he? has seen him oh, in concert. Your, your daughter? Yeah, she, she saw him at Blossom one time. On one of those bills where they had a couple of uh, okay. classic rock people. I was and thinking that'd be a great venue for said, him. She said that yeah, he was excellent. Well, I've never seen him. I'm sure that he came around to blossom, but unless it was Michael Stanley or James Taylor or Southside Johnny, I probably wasn't going too much in my college and late high school days. <laughs> Abracadabra, which I think is kind of a goofy song. It just kind of came out of nowhere. But summer of 82, we were ready for something like that, and we got it, didn't we? Sure. 
bunch of compilation albums, number one singles, several, several live albums for Steve Miller. Yeah, I found some of his stuff to be a little bit, um, I don't know, how do you say it, uh, regurgitation of others' ideas. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody did it any better than Steve Miller yeah. did. I mean, some of those great tunes are just, just wonderful to listen to. When you have the influences that he did and all the work he did with Paul Butterfield, you know, and all the places he's been, you know he has a really good background. Sure. So you're going to like some of it just for mere respect of, of, his, of his talent. Right. And anybody who plays guitar behind his back or with his teeth, they're okay by me. (laughs) Frankie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to like next week's episode. I I said tongue-in-cheek a few times. The reason I like doing this podcast, one, we were bored last summer during the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. Not last summer, a summer ago. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do a little rock and roll chit-chat. But secondly, it's so I could talk about my favorite groups, Toad the Wet Sprocket sure. and Al Stewart. Absolutely. And Al Stewart, the native of Glasgow, Scotland, is going to be our featured artist next week, and there are a number of groups from Glasgow. We'll run those down. It'll be kind of fun. Okay. Still one of my favorite artists. He's in his 70s now, and hopefully we'll see him again once COVID kind of settles down, because I know he's had to postpone his shows that he was going to do last fall. Right. So that's next week on Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. Thanks so much for joining us and for downloads. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.